Romans chapter 2, verses 16 to 23. I read from the NIV, and you guys can read in your own Bibles or follow up there. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body is supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews. Okay, sorry, never mind. Grows as God calls it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So uh, actually, before I get into that uh, text today, I wanted to add one more announcement, uh, because if you've been coming here for a while and you'd like to take a next step, uh, we have membership here uh, in this church. And uh, finally, I think we announced it, I don't know, it's like almost a year ago, uh, it's finally in English now as well. Uh, and so if you want to become a member, you can take one of these and fill it out, and you can actually give it back to me, um, and we will have a meeting, and I'll just double check, make sure all your stuff is accurate. No, I'm just kidding. It's just a get to know you better, and then you can uh, become a member. And all the information about what it means to be a member and everything uh, regarding membership here is all now on the website, finally, at uh, ccffreiburg.de, also now in English. So, there's some another announcement for you guys. Uh, today is our third week in Chapter 2 of Colossians. We've been going through this uh, book for some time now, but there's a lot in it. It's uh, a very dense book and has a lot of really important things, and a lot of the uh, kind of heart behind it is Paul really caring for these Christians and seeing them mature. We talked about that actually back in chapter 1, that he's kind of a, a steward of the truth, that he's uh, that to see this church grow and to see them mature, and he feels responsible for them, even though he actually never even met them. He's never been there, never been to this church, and yet uh, he really cares for them. And we can kind of take that on, that this, this is something that we that we want to make sure we're looking to see to apply to our own lives today. Um, we'll be finishing off chapter 2. That was the, that's it. That was the rest of it. Um, and so that means we're kind of crossing the halfway point. We're halfway through the book uh, that we started, I don't know, a few months ago. And if you're just joining us, our series title is Christ Restoring All. Christ Restoring All. And if you've read through this entire letter, and if you haven't, I always encourage you to do that as we're going through a book. It's a small book. It's only four chapters. So it only takes uh, just a few, half an hour max, if you're a slow reader like me, uh, to read through the whole, book, the whole letter, the whole book. And I would encourage you to do that. kind of helps when we're going through the text, since we're going through it in pieces. Uh, but if you do, if you do take that time, or if you have already taken that time, you'll notice right away that... 
It's a lot about Jesus. I mean, uh, growing up in the States, it was kind of like always the, the answer. If somebody called on you, just say Jesus. It was usually a safe way to go. And that is definitely the case here in the letter. Jesus seems to be kind of really, he's really hammering in the importance of Christ. And in chapter 1, he just takes all of chapter 1, which is why we took so long to go through it, unpacking a lot of who Christ is and his nature and including the divinity and his nature as creator and God there from the beginning of time, as well as Lord and personal Savior and what that means and how we can be connected to him. And here in chapter 2, he's really been always talking about Jesus in a sense of being rooted in him. He, uh, two weeks ago, I think it was, we looked at uh, verse 7 and 8, where he kind of talks about being rooted, being built up in Christ. Um, and we see here in the text, and we see also last week, uh, being connected, being rooted, being built up, being united in him, and also united together as the church. This is, always seems to be the counter that he has to what he's addressing, whatever issue he's bringing up, which is what we'll be looking at today, one of the issues he's bringing up and dealing with some things that the church there was struggling with. And next week in chapter 3, we'll start chapter 3, uh, where he's going to get into some more practical stuff, where he's going to get a little bit more, he's going to even use some real-life examples of how to apply everything that he's been building up, building up to in the first two chapters that we've gone through so far. But we'll stay focused on chapter 2 today. Uh, the emphasis we see on being rooted in Christ in chapter 2, specifically, and united as his church, is Paul continuing to lay this foundation he began in chapter 1, continuing to lay down a foundation for the people. Remember what I had, I'd, if you weren't there, you won't remember, but uh, a few weeks ago, I mentioned how Paul was really filled with joy, right? The letter starts off with him saying how thankful he is to God when he heard about them, when he heard about what's going on in this church. Things are going well. They're, the church is thriving. It's growing. And people are believing and following after Christ. Good things are happening in the church. But he's also really deeply concerned for them and for their faith. Because as soon as, as we see with most things, anytime uh, things start to get really, go really well and things start to become successful and uh, there were people, churches were being planted, churches were growing, and with that, the church was being also infiltrated by false teachers, which is something Jesus warned, right, uh, years before, uh, that there will always be wolves amongst the sheep. So there were these false teachers that were infiltrating, and they had already started to lead some people away from the truth and the, kind of forming these little factions and with different and distorted versions of the truth. And that's what their aim was. They were distorting it usually, or almost, I would say always, by either adding to the truth, so you need Jesus and, or taking, it, taking away from the truth. And those are kind of like the two views that we see usually counter to Christ, liberalism and legalism. And here in chapter 2, Paul's main concern and all of his arguments have been directed at exposing the foolishness of what the false teachers were parading around as some sort of great revelation, that they were like the ones who had the real truth. Yeah, Paul gave you the start, but we're the ones who really know the whole truth, the big picture. And so this, Paul's trying to do that while simultaneously emphasizing the need, again, countering that, 
by emphasizing the need to be united as the church, where Jesus Christ stands as the cornerstone, the head, the unmovable head of the body of Christ. And that's kind of what we see all through chapter 2. Paul starts or started this kind of line of thinking all the way back at the start of the chapter in verse 4, which I'll read here. I tell you, I tell you this, that no one may deceive you with fine-sounding arguments. And I gave a few examples then. You can listen to it online if you weren't here uh, of some of those arguments that they were using. And Alex also talked a bit about that last week. And this week we will continue with some of these arguments that they were using, these false teachers were using. And today we're going to focus on one in particular that I believe this text uh, paints and I point, I point this out because, again, all of chapter 2 is telling us to be on our guard, to be ready, to be vigilant, that there's going to be lies about the truth. And this is as true today as it was then. And these truths can sound helpful. They can sound profound, like a new great revelation about what's really going on. As though everyone throughout history down to Christ himself, was wrong about the truth until this person, until this teacher came along and kind of revealed it to us. And I talked uh, two weeks ago about the arrogance of that. But at its core, all false doctrine, all these false teachings, all the twistings of the truth, whether adding or subtracting from it, have one thing in common, and that is a disconnect from Jesus, a disconnect from Jesus, and what our salvation at its core really depends on, and that is Jesus Christ alone. Jesus alone. We are saved by his grace and his work alone. And the conclusion today of chapter 2 is going to stay right on this point, and so especially focusing on one particular thing that we commonly refer to as legalism. Legalism, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. So I know you guys are all really excited to talk about legalism. Now, legalism is, of course, not in the Bible. You're not going to be able to check in the back and find out where, what's the verse where legalism is talked about in the Bible. It's not a term used uh, in the Bible, but it's a term we use to define an understanding of salvation that we see clearly in Scripture, and I think we see clearly here in this text. And here's a definition that I found that I, I think uh, helps, uh, hopefully. And I think this will actually kind of, I didn't intend to do this, but looking back now, uh, in retrospect, um, these two kind of views or understandings or definitions of legalism is kind of how, what we're going to be looking at today into like the first half of this message and the second half. And that is legalism is the conviction that law-keeping is the ground of our acceptance with God. That if I do everything right, if I hold, if I'm a good person, if I obey the laws, if I walk the right path, then I will be accepted by God. Then I will earn his love. Then, then he can't be against me. And that can be taken into different extremes, but that's it at its core. And that can be taken to the extreme of, well, if I do really good, then God owes me things. It can be taken to the extreme of, I just have to do good enough that he accepts me so I can go to heaven. But at some level, it's that if I'm keeping the law, this is the grounds, the reason for God's acceptance of me in whatever realm we take that. 
and the other definition that's right in line with this, also equal with this, is that it is the spirit and the life that flow from a failure to be humbled and broken, amazed, and satisfied by the grace of God in Christ. It's a failure to be humbled and broken and amazed and satisfied by the grace of God in Christ, that I need something more than that. Now, before you think, wait a minute, no, that's, that's not, this is definitely not for me. I'm not trying to keep all the laws. I'll take the grace. Thanks. I'm going to go ahead and check my Facebook now. Hold on. Stay with me, please. Uh, I know that for some of us here, this is going to sound like a message maybe that for the kind of more the old kind of convictional Christian and Christianity, those who's kind of hammering down the rules and regulations on us. And yeah, that was wrong. We definitely don't want that. I don't want anything to do with that. Has this, this is definitely not something I'm worried about in my life. I really want to encourage you to be careful with that. Because it's so much easier to fall into legalism than we think. And I think we're all guilty. If we're, if we're being honest with ourselves and examining ourselves, we're all guilty of some kind of legalism at some points in our lives. And it's something we need to be on our guard about. If Paul made it a point to address this issue, I would hope that we would also make a point to be cautious in examining our own hearts. So let's go ahead and go through the text now before we run completely out of time uh, and see what Paul actually says about it. So verse 1, let's read again. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Now, Paul is addressing one of the false teachers' claims here that they needed to do more than, they needed more than just Jesus alone, right? We also must keep certain Jewish regulations and observances. That's kind of what he's pointing out to. He's saying, don't let them tell you that. Don't let them put that on you. Don't believe that. That's not the truth. Uh, this was an adding to the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ by grace alone. He's saying, don't, don't put that on yourselves. And they were, they were claiming here to, with these, specifically with these uh, ones they uh, mentioned here, I'll just go through. Uh, so the first one is dietary restrictions. So what you eat and drink, that's pretty obvious. So kind of observing the laws of what one could or could not eat according to Jewish law uh, means no bacon. So I'm definitely not keeping that one. Being from Texas, I don't know how to eat anything without bacon, I feel like. At least that's what my wife tells me. Uh, new Moon Festival. I'm not sure if any of you are celebrating any New Moon Festivals. Uh, this was a Jewish holiday given in the Old Testament. It took place during the New Moon, if that wasn't obvious. And it was a time where they would have a lot of extra sacrifices that would be offered. Uh, it was also like a Sabbath that, so that everything would be, uh, all work would have to be stopped during that time. No trade would be happening. Uh, Sabbath day, of course, a day of rest. No work or trade of any kind could take place. And it was, obviously, that was also something that God commanded in the Old Testament. Uh, I don't think, as I mentioned, I don't think anyone here is celebrating a new moon festival. Uh, no one's doing any sacrifices. This might not be something that you have heard or struggle with. Uh, this, but the other one would be uh, the Sabbath. Uh, this one is still, still a bit debated today. 
whether or not we are required to keep a Sabbath. And I just want to be clear about what I see in Scripture without getting into any debates. You can come up to me afterwards if you have some opinion you'd like to share with me or email Giannis either way. Um, I want to be clear that I am definitely not against having a day off. That's Tomorrow actually would be my Sabbath, if you want to call it that. That's my one day off in the week, and I really enjoy it. It's, it's nice. It's an important thing, important part of my life. And I would say that we want that. We want that in our life. And especially when we're taking that time to spend time with the Lord or to celebrate the things that He's given us and blessed us with. So that can be a really good thing to have. But if we treat it as a requirement, we're devaluing what it really means. And we can really be falling into the direction of legalism. Jesus says it best that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This is kind of a joke in my house, being from the States, you know, consumer capital of the world. There's no such thing as like a day when things are closed. And uh, I sometimes get a little bit frustrated that on Sundays everything is uh, closed down and that if you want to like, I live in a village, so if you, you know, want to vacuum your room on a Sunday, people are going to be like, what are the neighbors going to say? You can't be working on a Sunday. I'm like, this is a little bit religious, I don't know. But anyway, I was warned not to rant about that. All that said, uh, I, would, I just want to add into this that no matter where you land on whether Christians today should have a Sabbath or not, or what day it should be on, whether it should be Saturday or Sunday or all of that stuff, I want to be clear that it's, it's a good thing to take a day of rest, but it cannot become a burden or a religious ritual because it then loses all of its value in connecting us to Christ. He is the Lord of the Sabbath, as he also said, and it's really about him. He is the one who gives us rest. And I want to be clear that there is, in the new covenant, we do not have to take a day off. I don't know. I might have a few people might disagree with me on that. I don't believe that we are required by God to do that. What Jesus says in the New Testament is, come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. And the thing is, is it, we don't have to take one day. We can go to him any day. You can be in the middle of a, of a crazy work week, in the middle of a stressful situation in your life, and just go to him. And he gives us rest, and he gives us peace in the midst of our storms and our troubles and our trials. That's the new covenant. The new covenant is I can go to Christ any moment of any day. I don't have to take one day of the week. Again, not saying that it's a bad thing to take one day off, uh, Feel free to do that, but it is not something that we are required to do by in the new covenant, and that's what he is warning them against. All the thing is, is that all the rules, all the regulations of the Old Testament are now fulfilled under the new covenant. Verse seventeen: These, and he's talking about all these things, all these regulations, including the Sabbath, all these things. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So we see the transition. The law is only a shadow or an image, a picture, if you will. It could also be translated a picture of what was to come. Hebrews 10, I'll read through these really quick. Hebrews 10, 1 says, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. 
Galatians 2.16, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. There's nothing that we can do, no, no work that we can do, no matter how many Sabbaths we, we obey or how little bacon we eat. Nothing can make us right with God. And Romans 10.4, Christ is the culmination, or another translation, the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. We believe on Christ, and we are made righteous through that. How many of you have photos on your phone of somebody maybe you haven't seen in a while? Anybody? Yeah? Like, for me, it's like my mom, but, I mean, that's been like, it's been a few years now since I've made it back to Texas. A lot of you are quite young. I feel like maybe it's only been a few months since you have seen your parents. I don't know. Either way, you, we all have pictures of, on our phone of people maybe we haven't seen in a while. Now imagine, if you will, right now you got on a plane, train, car, whatever it would take, boat, I don't know, uh, and you went to see them. And you were standing, and they were, they were, you saw them walking up. They opened the door. Would you pick up your phone and be like, ah, oh, yeah, I remember them. Be like, uh, I'm right here. This is what Paul's trying to depict here. When I read this, anytime we lean towards trying to keep the laws and the, re- and the restrictions and the regulations wh- rather than, or whether it's things that we need to do or things that we don't need to do and trying to live this certain way, when we f- fall into that as, as our kind of means to God, we're actually going backwards. We're just looking at an image of what was to come when Jesus is standing right there in front of us. The law was there to show that one would come to fulfill it perfectly. Something that we could never do. The law was there to show us that we need someone else. We're not good enough. I can't obey all these laws. I need someone. And someone's coming. Christ. And he came. So that by simply believing and placing our trust in him, we may have the very righteousness that he has purchased for us through his death and resurrection. Now again, you might be like, yeah, totally with you, man. I'm not keeping those Jewish laws. I want the grace. That sounds good to me. But I also want to say, again, be careful. A legalistic view is not only about Old Testament laws. It's a way of thinking about our standing with God, out of which a life flows that is void of a right understanding of our relationship to God through Christ alone. And I'll read the definition I said earlier, that legalism is the spirit and the life that flow from a failure to be humbled, broken, amazed, and satisfied by the grace of God in Christ. Verse 18 Verse 18 of our text. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions or meaningless notions by their unspiritual mind. So Paul's exposing here the nature of the teachers themselves. If someone is preaching a doctrine... That seems good, seems plausible, but we're not sure. We can also hear 
I think, apply this to examining the character of those preaching it. I think that's one thing he's trying to point out. But also, Paul is also giving us a glimpse of some of the root or the source of their doctrine, of where it's coming from, what it's kind of being poured out of, which I find we might want to maybe check and be a little bit alert for these things in our own hearts. So first we see false humility and worship of angels. And these are two of the identifiers that he uses uh, for their character or the character behind their false, these false factions that were being formed in the church. Worship of angels, I'll just make a quick note on that. Uh, this is literal. They were literally worshiping angels. This was also about praying to angels directly, praying maybe for protection for this or, or that, and just calling on angels directly. Uh, I know that that's still done by some people today. I just want to be clear, that is not taught anywhere in Scripture. It's not biblical. We pray to God. We pray to God. And we can pray to the Father. You can pray to Jesus himself, or you can pray to the Holy Spirit. You've got three to choose from there, all of them God. But we don't pray to God's creations, including angels. We pray to God himself. So I'll just, that's just a side note. I don't know if anybody was struggling with that. That's what I see that as. False humility. This one is a little bit more dangerous, maybe a little more rampant uh, than praying to angels. Uh, false humility is, or false humility at its core, when it comes to the doctrine of our faith, is about trusting too much in ourselves and not enough in the grace of Christ. It's about trusting too much in ourselves and not about enough in the grace of Christ when it comes to the doctrine of our faith, while simultaneously holding to an image of ourselves, both personally and publicly before others, that has the appearance of genuine humility before God. It's basically a definition I've put together for false humility here in the text. And the danger of this can often increase, actually, the longer we walk with God. The longer we've been Christians or living as Christians. I think some live as Christians not even knowing they don't know Christ. And that's the real, real danger of this doctrine. Especially for those of us who grew up in church. But I think even in just Western society, for in a lot of ways, and actually globally more and more, there is a general knowledge about what it means to be a Christian. Okay, I kind of get the idea. You go to church, you sing some songs, you do some things, maybe read some things, maybe go to a small group. I get it. I get what it means to be a Christian. And we can kind of get into this cycle of just knowing what we should do. But without genuine understanding of grace and humility before God, this can easily just become another form of legalism. Where it's not about Christ. It's not about connection to Him. It's just about doing the right thing, obeying the laws of Christian society. False humility can lead to legalism with thoughts like, well, I'm a pretty good Christian, I think, for the most part. I, do, I don't do this, I don't do that, I've, I've never murdered anybody, I try not to speed or cut people off in traffic. That was a bit of a confession, too. I'll be really humble with you. I do that. I'm a pretty good Christian. I do nice things for people. Sometimes I do nice things and they don't even know. How humble is that? I'm so humble. 
always think of Moses who self called himself the most humble man who ever lived. That's true humility. But it can also it can also extend beyond just the don't do this and do this within Christianity. It can also be the things that we experience. I find it really interesting here in the text it says that they go into great detail and the ESV says they go on and on, which I really liked. Uh, they go into great detail about what they have seen. And that word seen literally can be translated also to are things that they have experienced. So it's things they've seen, things they've experienced. He's talking about maybe things, encounters they've had, spiritual things that they've gone through or seen or experienced. And I want to warn you to be very weary of those who go on and on about great spiritual experiences all the time and how much it's moved them and affected them. And yet somehow Jesus, biblical Jesus, is never there. He's never in the story. He's never the center point. They're the center point. When when we encounter Christ, we're just amazed at him. We are genuinely humbled when we encounter Christ in our life. We don't want to become overly legalistic in a search for the next experience that we have to have. What can this look like? Well, you can check your own heart by asking yourself, well, how do you think about things like this? I, when we think, well, if, I, if you don't lift your hands during worship, if you're not jumping up and down, you must not love Jesus as much as I do. That's false humility and a legalistic view of your understanding of Christ. If you're not moved to tears at least once or twice a month, man, you probably don't even have the Holy Spirit in your life. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what religion you have. This is a legalistic view and a narrow understanding of how God can move in each and every one of our lives individually. Now, of course, I do want to be very clear. I'm not saying anything against these things. Man, I love these things. I've, had these, I've experienced these things. Being moved to tears, <laughs> lifting our hands during worship. I'm a big fan. So I'm not saying anything against these things in particular. But we want to be careful if we find ourselves judging others because they're not experiencing God the way we think they should. That's a dangerous way to go. And it can be a sign of a false humility and a legalistic view of our relationship to God. You might be a legalist and you didn't even know it. All legalism, whether based in an expectation to keep all the laws perfectly, all the commands of God perfectly in order to earn God's favor, or a legalistic view of the experiences we seek and a judgment on those who see things maybe differently than us, specifically with how we worship or things that aren't, necess- aren't biblical yes or no things. There's a dangerous and powerful force behind these ways of thinking, behind these kinds of ways of thinking. And well, let's, we see that in verse 20. Verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belonged to the world, do you submit to its rules? Now since... Uh, this is actually the second time that he mentions, the, mentions this in chapter 2, elemental spiritual forces. 
And this comes down to simply the spiritual forces in this world that are designed and placed there to corrupt and distort the truth. This is demonic forces, is what he's talking about. Rooted rooted in our enemy and sent by our enemy and the enemy of God and of all good things that come from him, especially the truth about our salvation. That's what this is about. It's about corrupting that truth, the most important truth ever known, that Jesus Christ came to save us through his love. He died and rose again. Now let me say this, or say, let me say it this way, actually. This, I believe that there are far more people, far more people than we think, on their way to hell because of legalism. Possibly more than any other false doctrine. I say that reluctantly. Obviously, I don't know. But this is something Jesus preached against. This is something Paul continually in almost all of his letters preaches against. Galatians especially, there he gets really mean. We have to really be on our guard with this kind of doctrine. This is one of the enemy's greatest tools and lies he ever developed. It's one the world has been buying into more and more too. To convince us that we don't need Jesus completely Maybe only partially, or maybe not even at all. Maybe if we just do good, or do enough good, or live rightly enough. I mean, we're all pretty good people, aren't we? If we just live good lives, then surely God isn't going to send us to hell. He's not going to send anybody to hell. just, you know, maybe okay, they have a couple parking tickets, but other than that, they're pretty good. Pretty good, live pretty good lives. Why would he? I mean, if he loves us so much, surely he wouldn't send anyone to hell who's living a good life. This is the lie that we hear. And this is the lie that we tell ourselves. That it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I believe in Christ or not. I just need to be good enough. The truth is it doesn't matter if our Legalism is based in a vigorous pursuit of righteous living through obeying the laws every time to the letter, which is usually our image of legalism, or if it's based in experiential understanding of our faith, or an understanding that I just need to be good enough. None of these can bring salvation. Verse 23 paints it for us this way. Such regulations and this is, applies to all legalism, indeed have an appearance of wisdom. It can seem like, the right, like a good idea. With their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, and that's talking about just, yeah, restri uh, restrictions on yourself and what you eat and how you live. It can seem like a good thing. Exercise, live healthy. But... They lack any value. They lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. They lack any value in keeping you from sinning. It's just directed in a different way. 
Okay, maybe you're, you're not, you know, sleeping with everybody you meet and doing drugs and getting drunk all the time, but you're, you're living healthy and you're doing, you know, helping your neighbors and doing good things and, and this and that, but it's really all about yourself. It's, again, just self-indulgence. It's self-indulgent worship. Either side is the same thing, is what Paul is saying to us. It's just self-indulgent worship. It might look better on the outside. It might be cleaner. It might seem like a good idea. It might seem like wisdom, but it's the same thing. You're not understanding you need Christ. As we mature in Christ, we have to be really on our guard with things like this. It's a really slippery slope to begin to forget the grace we've received in order to, in order to live a right life. As we sang this in one of the songs, uh, I'm sorry that I kind of, I don't remember the exact words, but it was something about sorry for kind of going through the motions. I think that can be something where we fall into legalism. So don't let yourself fall into thinking that you are accomplishing something in you by your own strength, no matter what it is, no matter how you're living. You need Jesus as much today as you did the first day you met him, as much as you need him every single day to your last. It never changes how much you need Christ. That's the thing that we tend to forget. That's the slippery slope. I'm doing pretty good now. I'll just pray once a week. Legalism. Self-indulgent worship. False humility. It's just a different side of the same coin. We have to remember our reliance on Christ. Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Therefore, my dear friends, this is also Paul, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So here Paul's excited. Here we see the same kind of image. He's, good. He's like, hey, I heard you guys, you guys were doing good when I was there. Now I'm gone and you're still doing good. Awesome. Don't lose it. Don't fall, don't fall off the edge. He immediately switches to a warning that they would continue to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Be on your guard. Be cautious, meaning to be cautious and never forget that you are saved by grace, that you're completely reliant on Christ. You need his work every step of the way, day after day. Jesus didn't say, come to me, take up your cross, and then good luck. He said, take up your cross daily and follow me. Every single day we have to come and say, I need you, Christ. I need you today as much as I did yesterday, and I'm going to need you tomorrow the exact same amount. I cannot do it without you. We need to be reminded that it is God who is at work to will and to act in our lives. He is doing the work. He is performing it. I'll quote one thing from Galatians, because as I said there, he's a bit more harsh. So Galatians 3.3 and I'm reading from the ESV. Are you so foolish? Very encouraging. Having begun by the Spirit, so Christ did a work in you through the Holy Spirit. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? So God started a work. He did something. He got everything going, and now you're going to finish it on your own? You think that's how it works? Are you so dumb? <laughs> that's not my words. That's Paul's words. 
pretty, it's a pretty intense way to think about it, but it's the reality. It is not by rules and regulations or perfect morality that we are able to resist the desires of the flesh. It is by the work of the Spirit within us. I can say to myself, I can say to you, hey, I'm not going to sin anymore. I'm going to live my life better. I'm going to eat healthy. I'm going to exercise. I'm going to do this and this and all of these things. But if they're truly going to be transformative and be a real change, I have to also come to an understanding that I can only even speak those things because it is the spirit within me who is working to produce this work. He is creating a God-exalting self-control. I don't want to just have self-control. Self-control, there's nothing really spiritual about self-control. And self-control in itself becomes about self. (laughs) I don't want that. I want to have a God-exalting self-control so that I'm not just living healthy, living right, hopefully being a good person, a good husband, good father, but I'm doing this under the glory of Christ, knowing that I need Him every single day as much as I did the first day that I met Him. And I need Him every day to the end. So in closing, I just want to encourage you, don't exchange spiritual maturity for legalism. Don't slip into that slope. We must always continually come to God as a child. As a child. Come to Him as a child, completely trusting Him, completely vulnerable. Or if you have any kids in your life, but they are insanely trusting. Once they trust you, it's like you could really take advantage of that. How much they just, they'll just fall backwards. Like, Dad, you'll catch me. We need to come to to God like that. I need you for everything. Don't exchange the real Jesus who's come to dwell within you, who wants to walk with you every step of the way. That's the beauty of it. He's not, he's not making it hard. He wants, he says, I'm, I'm coming in and I want to walk with you every step of the way. We have to reject that truth and choose ourself instead. How silly is that? Don't look at a photograph of Jesus when he's standing right there in front of you. Don't sell out for that. He's right there. We see that in verse 19 as a a counter to the false teachers. It says they have lost, they have lost connection with the head with Jesus, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, I'm guessing, grows as God causes it to grow. So of course we want to seek to live righteously. Yeah, we're going to talk a lot about that in chapter 3. Get ready. Especially as we mature in Christ, I want to live righteous. I want to do the right thing. I want to live a good life, a holy life, above reproach for God's sake. And of course, we want to seek experiences to love Christ and and to see His love and His truth experience in real ways, emotional ways, powerful ways, impactful ways. We want to worship Him full, wholeheartedly. I want to encourage you, though, to change the way that you think about this and make it a habit. Make it a habit. And I'm going to be honest with you, I, I'm challenged by this all the time. I grew up in church. I was saved or I became a Christian when I was six years old. I remember it well. I prayed with my mom in, a, in our bathroom. 
And I was like, I remember it. I remember it really vividly. It's this moment when something changed in my heart. Didn't follow him very consistently through my teen years, but that's a story for another day. But now, as I look back, I'm, I'm always challenged, man. It's something that I, I've made this a habit in my life, and I want to share it with you, and I, I would encourage you to do it as well. I want to always make sure that I am rooted in Christ every single day, every day. And how can this look? Try it this week. And you can change how it looks specifically for you, but in one way or another, every day, I thank God that He loves me. I thank God that He's in my life, that I'm not alone, that I don't have to do it by my own strength. That prayer looks a little bit different every time I do it, but every day, I thank God. I make a point to thank Him. I just, Jesus, thank you that, I'm, that you're with me. Thank you for reminding me that I need you. And that prayer can be in when I come at a, a challenge or when I have a victory. Thank you that you're with me. I can't, I can't get up and preach a single word without your grace. I can't do anything. I can't go to, to work and, and be a good employee without your grace. I can't be a good husband, a good father without your grace. Thank you that you chose to walk with me and to love me and to accept me. And we can ask him to humble us before him, that we would always be reminded of his glorious splendor and that he and he alone would ultimate, be our ultimate goal and satisfaction. Everything I do, I do it for you because I love you. Be in love with Jesus. And if you're in love with somebody, you have to spend time with them. And it's not just about coming with our needs and our, our desires, but just thanking him for what he's done. So I encourage you to try that. That's where it begins. I'll invite the band to come up. And as you do, as you come back to that core, you can trust that the work of the Spirit will flow out of you. And you will see your life being formed and live, you will be living more righteously because you want to obey Christ because you love Him and you're spending so much time with Him. You'll want to seek experiences of His grace and you'll want to be surrounded by His love and you'll want to see that poured out on all those around you in your life. But never, ever, ever lose connection with Christ. I know it sounds simple and you're like, yeah, I know, that sound, I've heard this before. Man, it's so, so easy to fall off of that. So make it a point every single day to just thank Him that He's with you. Acknowledge that He's there. Don't let a day go by that you don't. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your love, for your grace. Oh, we thank you so much that we can know you personally. We don't have to live perfectly to earn your approval. You come and accept us as we are and change us by your grace. Remind us today that we need you. Remind us today that you are with us now, tomorrow, and for the rest of our days. And that there's no way we can make it a single day by our own strength. Help us to learn to trust in you with the little things and the big things in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.